Welcome to the Daily Horror Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Jay Krieger, bringing you daily reviews of currently streaming horror movies for your twisted pleasure. Be aware that these reviews may include mild spoilers. And as always, I hope you enjoy. Keeping in touch with exes can be a challenge, but Karen Kusama redefines it in her dinner party horror film, The Invitation, which is currently streaming on Netflix. And to discuss today's film, I'm joined once again by a friend of the show, Bernie. What's going on, brother? I appreciate you having me back, man. How are things going? Not too bad. I'm excited to talk about what on a rewatch is still the most uncomfortable movie I think I've ever watched. <laughs> I'm, I'm right there with you on that. This is, uh, I saw this once before and even rewatching it again today, I was like this, there's just so many uneasy feelings that that director makes you feel with the way that she shoots this. I mean, it's, I think it's a phenomenal film for us to kind of talk about here. Yeah, it's definitely a, a teeth-grinding movie, and I'm never not kind of just a raw nerves at the end of it. But uh, let's get a quick summary of it out of the way for those who haven't seen The Invitation. Uh, the Invitation follows Will and his girlfriend, Kira, who accept an invitation to a dinner party hosted by Will's ex-wife, Eden, who's just returned from a mysterious trip abroad. It doesn't take long for old wounds to open up and for new sinister tensions to arise. Kind of like it in the intro, I think the only question I can ask you right off the bat, is this the most uncomfortable you've ever been watching a movie? Uh, it's definitely the most confused I've been watching a movie. Um, there, <laughs> there are so many points uh, of, of moments, at least, where they're having a discussion and you just have no idea what the hell is going on. Um, mm-hmm. You know, again, I, I hats off to that director. What, what did you say her name was? Karen Kusama. Karen Kusama. Um, yeah, I mean, she did a phenomenal job on this. But, um, I mean, the the acting and the performances that you get from these guys, they're, these are like, I feel like, B-movie actors for the most part. Um, but they give a, a hell of a performance, and, and that kind of adds to that uneasiness and tension throughout the film. Yeah, I'd say that they're... I would say not B movie, but more just like lesser known. Like this is one of those movies that came out in 2015, I believe, that really kind of allowed these people to highlight their range and their ability because this is a movie that the premise is very simplistic. It's people attending a dinner party and we kind of start to learn about past conflicts because going into the movie, you don't know a great deal about any of the characters. And that was something I picked up on this time uh, on my rewatch was that Logan Marshall Green, who plays Will, who's the protagonist, you only know two things about him going into the film because the film opens up with Will and his girlfriend driving to the party and they hit a coyote on the way to the party. And so he has to put it out of its misery with a tire iron. The only thing we know about him, though, is his name, that he's capable of violence and that he's been divorced. And so just in the opening moments of the film, those are the only things that you know about him. So I felt very much like I was like a fly on the wall in a party full of people that I don't know anything about anybody. And so in a film that's all about kind of opening up old wounds and uh, new tensions arising, and you're trying to kind of just decipher a lot of cryptic communication that happens between characters, I think that that is really key in ensuring that we're just as lost as the characters are. Right. I mean, you know, they go into it. Um, I believe her name is Eden and Dayton. They were yeah. gone for two years. And as the movie kind of unfolds, we learned that it was in some sort of a retreat in Mexico, I believe it was. Um, mm-hmm. And so, I mean, again, you, 
we're entering this uh, not as, you know, uninformed as obviously their friends are um, for however long they've been, you know, homies in that sense. But um, mm-hmm. you know, they don't know who this new Eden is. And, you know, I think Will mentions in the first, you know, whatever, 20 or 30 minutes that she's changed and mm-hmm. she's a little bit different. And I, right. that starts to plant in like the viewers heads that like, not everything is as it seems, right? I think that's kind of the the general direction that the director was taking it to. Um, mm-hmm. But again, as everything kind of starts to unfold, to your point, you start to really sense that uneasiness. And I felt like, you know, maybe you can let me know if, if it was different for you when you were watching it, but was there a point where you were thinking that Will is actually like the bad character of the movie? He's the the evil one, so to speak, and everyone else is, you know, kind of the good guys? Yeah. So, I mean, that is kind of like what I was alluding to a little bit in that you don't really know who he who he is as a character when the movie starts. And we start to form certain opinions based on the scenarios that we're presented with. But at the end of the day... I think what the movie does such a good job of kind of asking the viewer to call into question whether Will is the protagonist at a certain point in the film. And we'll get into that a little bit more with the reveal at the end of the movie, but it does a fantastic job of really just having the viewer question everything and get to a point where you look at this person that we perceive as being the protagonist just because of we've been stuck with him basically the entire movie. We're in we're staring over his shoulder as it were. But at the end of the day, like, we could be in the wrong in terms of our interpretation of these events. And I think that really plays out, like you said, in Eden, who is this new version of herself. And we didn't know the older version of herself. But even if she comes off as being very kind of like aggressively emotion, uh, emotionally aggressive with people in terms of just like very loving and shrugging things off. And we'll get into some of the trauma that uh, the film alludes to between the two characters and why they split. At the end of the day, that puts enough second guessing in our heads to be like, maybe this is just somebody that's found a way to live with something that people shouldn't be able to live with as comfortably, like living with a trauma. Right. I mean, there's so many different kind of avenues that we can go down. I mean, the the director did such a good job, I think, of illuminating how. Um, you know, these kind of cults really resonate with folks. Mm-hmm. Again, as we start to learn and, and the uh, the dinner party kind of progresses, we, uh, we start to understand that these guys, um, it was uh, Eden and Will, and then it was Pruitt played by John Carroll Lynch and a girl named Sadie um, mm-hmm. also join in on the dinner party outside of like the normal group of friends in that sense. Um, but you start to kind of get a sense of like, there's two different teams almost forming. Right. right. And, um, you know, I don't know if we want to jump into that film that they kind of played. Um, if we want sure. Or, but yeah, if we jump into that film part, like, I think we all have been to a, a, a dinner party or hanging out with some friends, you know, at least hopefully pre COVID in that sense, uh, <laughs> where, you know, you guys are hanging out and there's a, you know, a couple of people that you might not know or two different kind of friend groups mixing together. And someone mm-hmm. says something or starts talking about something that's way out nowhere. And you have that face of like will where you're just, you know, you're not sure if you want to like kind of put your head in your hands or, you know, to kind of walk away or whatnot. So I think the, again, the way the storyline kind of started building towards that um, uneasiness was really good. 
Um, mm. But to that point too, I, you just, you never really understood what was going on. I feel like until about like 45, 50 minutes into the movie where you again, start to see that kind of fracturing of the dinner party start to come about. Yeah. And that was going to be one of my questions to you was, did you think that uh, Kusuma did a good job of utilizing kind of just the slow burn? Because that is very much what the movie is. And that's why I think the tension works so well in it in a lot of ways, because it builds gradually, right? Like, like you said, everybody is, for the most part, is familiar with showing up to a party. You see, you go right to your group of friends. There's generally a few people there you might not know. But when you're meeting people for the first time, people are generally pretty friendly just because that's how people are in group settings a majority of the time. But then as soon as we start to kind of get to know people and some people become more comfortable than they should be, they start to share things that like, you wouldn't be, you wouldn't know about them just from looking at them. Right. And so I think in capitalizing and kind of exemplifying that in a way that is very drastic as we'll get into, um, I think it is really great in making a familiar situation that we've all been in, but then starting to extrapolate on that in increasingly uncomfortable ways. And when that really ties into the kind of doubt that the viewer has based on what little information we have and who to trust and who is this person or not a reliable narrator or not. I think that that really makes a very mundane general, general uh, premise for a movie that much more engaging. Right. And I mean, again, you know, we see, you know, there's a, a moment where Will is outside or no, I'm sorry. Will is inside and he sees David lighting up um, like some a lantern. Yeah. Lantern outside and it's red. And, mm -hmm. Again, there are these little kind of, um, you know, Easter eggs that the director kind of leaves out to us. Um, mm. you know, Cho or Choi, excuse me, where is he? Um, what exactly are Pruitt and Sadie doing here? Who is the guy? You know, there was a knock on the door and David and Pruitt walked out and we didn't mm. know necessarily who they're talking to. Um, I don't think we ever actually correct me if I'm wrong. Did do we actually ever find out who they were talking to in that scene? I don't believe so. I, and I would bet it was them turning away somebody that was coming, like maybe it was, well, I guess I don't, you don't know, but I think it was them just trying to persuade someone not to come in because of what they have planned. You know, there's no real margin of error here, even though we see how horribly things unfold at the end of the movie. At the same time though, they want as few people inside of the house that they haven't like pre-approved basically right. to be there. So other people uh, are asking questions in that sense. Uh, yeah. You know, to that point you, you mentioned, you know, you won't know uh, guests from like that, those small interactions until people, you know, start getting a little too boozy and they start to mm -hmm. tell people stuff that they might not necessarily do when they're sober. When Sadie got up and I think, you know, I forget the game that they were doing, but, you know, what you want or, you know, what you wanted to express, essentially, she got up and with like a weird kind of like a Manson kind of a smile, she was like, I love you guys. And I just mm -hmm. want to let you know that and that whole entire 20 second spiel, I just mm -hmm. felt my skin crawling, man. It was just, it was just so unnerving because, um, again, you have that notion of there's something off already, right? The mm -hmm. bells are going off. You just don't know necessarily how, but when yeah. you started doing that, you just see her like nasty teeth. I mean, I don't know. I, I think again, that's a combination of not only the talent involved in the film, but also just the pacing and the way that information is presented. Like the, 
most obvious answer is presented first, where the friends of Wills are joking, oh, Eden and David and these two other people they don't know, oh, they joined a cult and all these things. And they make it into a joke. So it almost dispels your first instinct of these people that are all smiles, everything is fine in the world. And yet they start to reveal the the facade that they're putting on of somewhat normal starts to break away a little bit. And we see that progressively, just like with the game that they play that you mentioned. And I think it really is a combination of those things that it allows it to build in a really nice and smooth way. It's not super overbearing at the top of the movie. It doesn't hit you over the head with the fact that, hey, this is what's definitely going to happen because I think in dispelling it, and then they present situations that are easily dismissed. And the big moment with that is like with Troy when he shows up. Because David has that moment, or Will has that moment where he's like, where is he? And he blows up and he assumes like, I've cracked this thing. I've cracked whatever facade that they're putting on. And then he shows up. And at that point in the movie, I mean, I assume you were as well, just like I was. We're just like, oh shit. Maybe this person we've pushed all of our chips into is the one that is the odd man out and he's reading too much into things because of his trauma. I mean, that's the, the look on Will there is the look of a guy that like took out like his family life savings and put it into like a multi-level marketing scheme and <laughs> into a pyramid scheme. Yeah. It just, yeah. I, I think we've all felt that, you know, you're so confident in something being the way that, you know, you perceive it. And then mm-hmm. as that curveball hits, um, there's nothing you could do but apologize, right? And I think that's that is what he does. He ends up apologizing to David and kind of goes out on his own for a little bit. Shout out also to Kira. She is the yeah. girlfriend that you could have in a movie or not in a movie. Like that guy freaked out a couple different times and all she was doing was trying to be supportive. I feel like mm-hmm. the roles were reversed and my girlfriend was doing that. I'd probably <laughs> Well, uh Kusuma had a great quote in the commentary for the movie where Uh, She says that it's very much the film itself is kind of like a black comedy in a sense of like manners. And she said, what we discovered is how much the movie is about being polite and how dangerous that can be and how the group of friends keep discounting all of these oddities amongst Eden and her new friends and her new husband because they're being polite. You're doing something, you're offering up a certain set of a demeanor essentially that you're supposed to, we're taught from a young age, if we had half decent parents, you're taught you're in somebody else's home. You need to respect their home. You need to respect them. You need to respect their friends and family and whatnot, not take advantage of their hospitality. And so in being overly polite, we find it again, it's almost to a satirical degree where people start to like, one of the big things when I've talked to some people about this movie is they're like, oh, well, at a couple of points, they should have just left. And it's like, well, for starters, there's no movie if somebody just decides to leave the house. You know what I mean? Like they're in the house and so we can play this story out. But this idea that people can't help themselves in being polite. And there's even like that example you said about Sadie, where Sadie, um, she makes out with one of Will's friends. And one of the friends excuses it by saying she's just uh, she's painfully sexually awkward or something like that. And it's like, that's a pretty bold move to make on somebody that you don't know that you just met. And so in terms of just like applying that politeness to a situation where you should not be polite at all. And we see that Will is the only one that kind of breaks this polite streak that everybody else is essentially incapable of. Right. Especially when one of his friends tries to leave and David like takes her arm and tries to keep her there. And Will is just like, that's one of the moments where he snaps and he's just like, 
let her go. You're going to do this. And I think that he is supposed to be the viewer in a lot of ways in that, hey, if that was happening and I saw that happening, I would be the one to not give a fuck about being polite. But a majority of people might not because of the sort of preconceived notions we have about being polite. Right. Well, I mean, again, and the thing is, you know, I, I can't give enough credit to uh, Miss Kusama, the director, the cookie crumbs that she gives us, for instance, like those flashbacks where mm-hmm. uh, Eden, I think she was like cutting her wrist in the, uh, yeah, it was a suicide attempt, suicide attempt. And then, you know, that it's kind of juxtaposed, you know, five or 10 minutes later, you see them having a flashback, you know, kind of, you know, being romantic in like a bathtub and uh, their kid at that point, um, you know, walks in and, you know, they have like a little jovial conversation between Eden and Will. Those, that balance between it being, you know, kind of, you know, heartache and despair. And then that love, I think it's mm-hmm. played out in the movie, right? You know, especially when you see there's a moment um, where Will is walking by, I believe it was the bathroom and he sees Sadie in there and she's like yelling into the mirror or doing yeah. weird faces. And then she does that again. She does that like Manson smile at the end. And you're like, mm-hmm. what the fuck is going on? Right? Like, right. <laughs> there's something yeah. off and, in using Sadie's character as an example, those are some of the scenes where I was unsure if we could kind of be reliant on Will as a narrator because the first time he meets Sadie, she's standing in the doorway at the end of the hall and she's naked. And it's just like, what the fuck? Like, why would that be? Why would somebody be in the house doing that? And the first time I watched it, I was like, is, did, did he just imagine that? Right. Is that a hallucination of some? Yeah. Is that like a hallucination? Like, why would he, why would that happen there? And She's very reserved in the way that she includes those kinds of weird, inexplainable moments that really challenge the viewer to think about all the information that they've been given. And um, especially like the flashbacks, did you think that those were handled well? Because I think early on, it's they're sparingly used, but it's at pretty key moments in the film. I think it's kind of like putting together a puzzle, right? It doesn't... Yeah make sense when we're watching it but at the end of the movie when you know we kind of see the whole picture then it mm-hmm. illuminated a little bit more um but yeah i mean again to to your point i i had no idea what the hell was going on for the first hour of the movie basically <laughs> first time i watched it and even the second time i was watching it, like I, I have a good general idea of what's going to happen obviously but still mm-hmm. there were those unnerving moments where again you're just catching yourself is will the protagonist or is he the antagonist right and is this just a weird hallucination and eden and david are completely normal or am i crazy you know am i crazy right right so again the the way that the movie is framed and they have those different small scenes that you know for instance david locking the door it mm-hmm. obviously naturally gives you this kind of a claustrophobic feeling, but then he puts the key back in the door and I don't think he unlocks it even, but still it just gives us like a, I guess in a human sense of it, it relaxes us a little bit, but to yeah. your point, right. There were so many different things that you can just throw away on their own where you start adding them up. You're like, yeah, something isn't making fucking sense here. And we, we got to figure that out. Yeah, you start almost keeping track like on a tally board of just like, oh, here's something suspicious. Oh, we've resolved that. Here's something suspicious. We've resolved that. And it goes back and forth. And again, I think really even on a rewatch, like I hadn't seen this in a year probably. And obviously I know the direction it goes in, but I really was appreciative of the fact that 
they craft real doubt in Will's character. And especially in thinking and in talking to you about it, like when he finds the pills, they used to share that house together. For all we know, Will is the one that is so rippled by the trauma and we find out from losing their child and dealing with Eden, who was suicidal at one point. I think it it put real doubt in my mind, like those could be his pills left over from, it's only been two years. She didn't move out. Maybe some of the belongings got left behind, like that kind of thing. And I think that in doing that, it again, elevates this very, just a simplistic premise of a dinner party. And some people are acting strange, but there's enough doubt there that none of the, well, I'll just, from this point, I will refer to them as cultists. Uh, The cultists, they don't do anything that's overtly, alarming in the sense that it's like a fight or flight moment. You know what I mean? Like you said, there's those moments where he puts the, he takes the key out of the door and locks it. And it's like, that's weird, but that's something you can explain away. But then they resolve it instantly by him saying, okay, well relax, I'll put the key in there. And we get enough of those little moments that you really do question whether Will is the one that he is almost jealous of the fact that these people have learned and found a way to disperse of their uh, grief and trauma right i mean there's you know i we mentioned earlier that video that they watch which is essentially a uh it opens up to i think people were like you know kind of like walking through a field or something like that doing meditation and yoga and then this like two minute and 30 second video ends with like a woman dying surrounded by people that love her yeah i going she's found peace and they're like you know, the, the cultists, right. They're like, so what do you guys think? And it's right. <laughs> I think every, every reaction of the other, the non cultists will, uh, Kira, Tommy, like those guys, right. Everyone's just looking around. I think just like the audience is going, what the fuck am I doing here? Like what, yeah. what the hell is happening? And then mm-hmm. a moment a little later where Pruitt, uh, played by again, John Carroll Lynch, who's phenomenal in this. Um, yeah, he, that, that speech that he gives again, where it's like he has a wife and you understand mm-hmm. that something obviously happened to her. But then as he explains it, you learn that he is, you know, all intents and purposes, he killed her. Right. Whether yeah. or not. And he's like, I've found peace and I can go on with it again. Will is looking around like, is this really happening? Yeah. <laughs> I think I had that same reaction. Most of the audience does. Right. So until we get up to that, um, what is it? That second floor where they have like the action mm-hmm. party there. Yeah. Don't think that really. And again, correct me if, if, if I'm wrong on that, but I don't think anyone really has an idea of what the hell is going on until we get to no. the where people are chewing in slow motion. It seems like either Will is having a panic attack or you are as the viewer. Right. <laughs> right? We're so, very much in his, in his anxiety at that point. Right. Like, you know, those that slow motion capturing of like people pouring wine as like the camera kind of goes over the table, those shots, like the cinematography in this was really, really well done. It kind of keels in on people eating food and like breaking the chicken or whatever they're eating right in their mouth. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of juxtaposed with Will sweating and kind of shaking weirdly. And again, that's where in my head, I was when I first watched this, I was almost a hundred percent sure at that point that like Will is a murderer or something and he's going to kill everyone in some <laughs> fashion, right? Like I, I don't know much about this director outside of, I think she directed a movie with Jennifer Fox. 
if I'm not mistaken. Uh, yeah, she did uh, Jennifer's Body. Jennifer's Body, there we go. And she did uh, a movie, I believe, last year called Destroyer with Nicole Kidman. There we go. So, I mean, I, I've seen Jennifer's Body, but I, that wasn't anywhere near the level of this one's. Uh, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. But, um, again, going to that point and then seeing Troy is back, he, he, he didn't die, right? He wasn't you know, kidnapped or some kind of weird thing that could have happened to him. It was a case of just something at the last minute happened. And then Will is, you know, he's, he's kind of freaking out in in the background now while everyone else is kind of opposed to him. Actually real quick. Did you notice that in that scene, everybody looks like they're against Will in the shot, right? It's, it's close up on Will's face and then everyone like it goes back to the dinner party and they're all kind of away at him looking at him. Again, I think huge, huge credit to the cinematographer and, and the director for putting that together. But again, it gives you in that notion that it's it's definitely Will now. He's lost his mind. And then the craziness starts happening from the cultists. I mean, it's a curveball of all curveballs, I feel like, in movies. Yeah, and I, I mean, those are all great examples of just how they're able to weaponize the viewer's lack of understanding in that we'll start, we see him become more and more duress as everyone else around him is, becomes more and more comfortable. And it does help, of course, everybody else has been boozing all night and whatnot. But at the same time, it really does make him at odds and it makes him very much isolated from the rest of the group. And we see that periodically throughout the film. There are mo- multiple moments where he moves off into the kitchen he goes into a different room. He goes outside to use his phone, whatever. And he very much is becoming isolated from everybody else in the house. And his friends who, granted, he hasn't seen them in two years because of the tragedy that occurred, they become almost more friendly with the cultists at a certain point because everybody is so confused by his behavior. And just in that isolation, it really does speak to this idea that maybe maybe we are maybe we should be warming up to the cultists more than we're warming up to will because apparently how can all of these other people be so wrong about uh, this new group of people that they don't really know um but to go back to the scene that you talked about with uh John Carroll Lynch that is the most chilling part of this movie and it is a perfect example i think of how uh Kusuma kind of scales everything and the way that He's giving this speech and up until this point, the whole cult angle has very much been love and peace and being surrounded by loved ones. And yeah, that video was really weird and unsettling, but at the end of the day, there's nothing overtly, I guess there's obviously nothing overtly violent about it, or there's nothing, there's no overtly sinister nature to it. You know what I mean? It's not like them snuffing the person out or putting a pillow over their face or something. It's kind of these people that have this way of thinking that is very foreign to everybody. But at the same time, on some level, what they're saying is not so alarming that you can understand the thought, even if you don't agree with it. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I wouldn't want to watch that. But when they start explaining it and they explain it so calmly, you're like, okay, I understand why they think that, even if I don't agree with it, or even if it's still disturbing. No, absolutely. But- in that speech that John Carroll Lynch gives about killing his wife, the way that he begins that, you assume that he's just going to tell us what happened. He did this horrible thing, and this is how he was able to de- get rid of his grief and his trauma and acceptance with it. 
But then he takes it one step further and it shows how the film kind of sneaks up on you and escalating the weirdness in that he talks about hitting her. She hit her head. But then he gives these little details that are so disturbing that don't add anything to what his, his omission of guilt. It's almost like he's reveling in the memory when he talks about how he hit her, she hit her head, and then she started clawing to get up off the, ca- off the floor. And he starts like imitating it. And you're just like, okay, this is taking it one step further. Like, oh, I'm at, he's actually like reveling in a fond memory or something like that. Like it's at, it's like anytime you've been at a party and somebody is adding detail to a story that is way too much information. And usually that story and information isn't about beating your spouse to death. (laughs) (laughs) Generally speaking at the dinner. I mean, hopefully, you know, I mean, you know, again, the way that the director juxtaposes it, right. You have these cultists who are in theory accepting of their faults, whatever they may be as little or horribly aggressive as they are. Right. And then you have Will who is a, in, theory a normal person i mean obviously as we learn his son dies right i don't know necessarily how did he get hit by a or something was it so they were at, they had a birthday party at the house and they the kids were playing baseball or something and another boy swung the bat and i i assume he hit him in the head or in the back of the head or something and killed him yeah. uh That's which yeah, it's a, it's a pretty traumatic way to uh, lose somebody. Right. And I mean, that little guy was, you know, I don't think they ever mentioned an age, but he seemed really young. I think he was like under 10 or something like that. So, I mean, obviously anyone that goes through that, they're going to be in some sort of a grief cycle, right? But then um, I don't think it was right after Pruitt had made his speech. I forget w- at what point it was like um, in that kind of first act when they're downstairs, but Will freaks out and he goes to Eden. He's like, our son died. His death. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. you juxtapose his emotional, you know, he's, his voice has peaked, right? Like you, you can see the energy versus Pruitt. Who's like, yeah, I killed my wife and, she, mm-hmm. you know, trying to grab at me or whatever, trying to have my help up and then mm-hmm. collapsed and she's dead. And he said yeah. motionless with nothing in his body whatsoever. So I think that kind of differentiation of the the anti-cultists versus the cultists um, brings home the point of, you know, those guys were completely remorseless. And that's, I think, how that snowball of, of, of situations ended up happening for the guests there. Yeah. And I mean, if if you weren't listening, if there was no audio in those two scenes and you're juxtaposing them, there's no audio. You've never watched the movie before. You would assume that Pruitt is, by all intents and purposes, normal. While it's a creepy way, it, the shot is creepy because of what he's saying and the way it slowly zooms in on him. But at the same time, his body language, like you said, is very reserved. He's very just mellow. Whereas if we watched Will having that outburst, which is very much justified, and what he's saying is true, this idea that, that his ex-wife disappears in the woods, comes back with these dudes, and all of a sudden she's able to forget the trauma of losing their son, or she seems to have. But then Will, just based on his body language, and I mean, based on the fact that he's got this outrageous facial hair and long hair and everything, you would assume that he was crazy and you would assume that he's the antagonist. So I think you raise a good point that I hadn't thought about in that just juxtaposing the demeanor of the cultists and then obviously of the guests and especially Will it is very unsettling and it kind of just adds more 
underlying fear and tension to the entire film. Right. I mean, to, to that point, right. There was a, a in that scene um, when they're basically uh, what's face Sadie kisses Gina and then mm-hmm. um, David asks Gina, okay, so what do you want? She's like, I'd like to do some Coke that we used to do in college. <laughs> and uh, my man David's on the ready, apparently. He has some, and he's like, you know, she kind of, um, I almost said the Russian word. She kind of, is, <laughs> my brain isn't working. She, um, she basically gets a little bit anxious or, um, you know, red in the face, kind of blushing about, you know, oh, maybe I, sh-, you know, I don't actually want to do it right. And David's like, no, no, you said it, you want to do it. So the right. way of thinking is like, it's a little bit more freer and expressive. And there's mm-hmm. also a point where Sadie, um, she's, that, Lindsay Burge is a great uh, actress, the actress that plays Sadie. But I, I can't say enough how much I fucking hated that character. <laughs> yeah. How creepy she was. Yeah. Will is outside by the pool, just, you know, one of the 15 times that he ended up outside away from the party. <laughs> he did spend a third of the movie outside. He really did. I mean, listen, don't get me wrong. I'm usually like that sometimes at, uh, at parties too. You got to get a little away. But anyways. Um, and you don't have, and you don't have a dead son. I do, you know, he <laughs> knows of. Um, but now, so with Sadie, she comes into him and, uh, you know, they have like a very cordial conversation like, oh, do you want me to sit down with you? There's no phone service. And then just out of nowhere, she's like, do you want to fuck me? And it's like, yeah. all right, come on. Like, there is, can we have a little bit of a bridge to that kind of conversation? Right. It, it notches up, right? So it, it she starts saying, obviously, a lot of very sexual things, and she tries to seduce him. And you're thinking, well, you know, again, to that point of these guys, if they want something, they go out and get it. When Gina said she wanted Coke, she, in theory, wanted to do it, but she was kind of anxious about how other people would seem, where mm-hmm. it seems like the this getaway that uh, the cultists were at, they could do whatever they want, whether it was, I mean, it's it's a literal cult, right? Everyone has sex with each other. It's, you know, the whole nine yards. So the way that those two different parties lived and having those worlds merge again, the way that it happens at the end where, you know, the fireworks go off, so to speak, we, (laughs) there's a, you know, you can't live like that between those. Right. But um, it was just very eerie how like the differences of personalities and their desires started showing about throughout the film. And it gives like a stark contrast between again, the cultists and the anti-cultists. Yeah. And I think, again, it goes back to this idea that there's nothing so overt that a red flag is sent off to the degree that like, there's no other way that this movie can end. And I think that creating enough of that doubt and we get enough of those contrasts where this is strange behavior, but on some human level, you understand it. You know what I mean? It's not like it's not like they bring a goat out at one point and they're like, we're going to slaughter this in the living room before we do that. You know what I mean? Like the way that they are able to draw in people is with things that are very socially acceptable. We're going to play a game. We're going to show you a video. They don't oversell this idea of the cult. It very much is presented as a spiritual thing, which I think is much more grounded. Like when you think of cults, you think of insane devil worshiping and all of these things, which a lot of horror movies kind of delve into. And in having a cult present, give a presentation essentially, or have a recruiting session during the invitation to dinner, which we learn it's a very different type of invitation. 
Um, I think it just, it creates again, enough doubt in the viewer's mind that that payoff for the big reveal, which on some extent we all assume at a certain point, like, you know what I mean? It's a movie about people that are very clearly in a cult. It's going to go one of two ways. Will's going to be crazy or it's going to be them trying to kill everybody. Even when you get that big reveal that on some level you're anticipating, I think it is that much more shocking and that much more effective because the film has been presented so grounded in a way that, I don't know, there's something about the violence at the end of the movie that is far more sickening to me in a way than I would normally think of like for a slasher movie or something like that. It's just very domestic, if that makes sense. Like, and everybody is, the energy level is so calm, especially when Pruitt goes to get the gun and then he starts shooting people and one person gets stabbed uh, later on. There's just a very mellowness to the violence that it's introduced that, I don't know, man, it, it hits in a way that not a lot of horror movies violence hits. Well, real quick. So before we jump into that, because there's so much okay. about that scene, um, but when was that moment where you were like, oh, shit's about to hit the fan? Were you on the same page with Will that there was some sort of, um, uh, I forget the drug that uh, Will had said that he had. It was like a barbiturol or something. Yeah, something like that. But essentially, from my understanding, they they used that and they put that into the wine and then everyone was drinking that and they were going to die, right? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. The I interpreted the medication as this is why Eden is so chill. Oh, okay. because it feel everybody else. The other three cultists are putting on a facade, right? They're orchestrating this. Eden is the one. And I think her reaction at the end of the movie is speaks to this is that she is very much under other people's influence to a certain degree. And then the other, the thing that pushes her over the line and going along with things is that she's all doped up because she's the one that no matter what's going on, she's all smiles and she's able to brush past things and whatnot. And, she very much, her character carries herself like somebody that doesn't have any rough edges. You know what I mean? Like there's the one moment where she freaks out and slaps one of the uh, one of their friends. But other than that, everything just kind of bounces off of her. Right. I mean, you know what I mean? To, to that point, Tammy Blanchard, a, a great performance in this as well. Uh, this movie has so stacked with uh, performances. It really, I mean, honestly, outside of Logan Marshall, um, I forget the green probably gonna remember that um <laughs> him and michael Hoosman, um who played in game of thrones and then john carroll lynch has had a, a couple really good uh movies i've i don't think i've seen too many of these guys and other stuff but everyone gives a really really good performance and getting into that right so you're we're in the scene where will is looking at the wine basically and everyone's cheersing and then uh, I believe it was Gina that drank it first. Mm -hmm. Kind of clink, and I don't think anyone else does it. And he starts right. lapping that the wine away from people. I, I don't know if this is just my own craziness, or I don't know if you noticed this, but the way that Will hits Sadie is very reminiscent. Uh, I don't know if reminiscent is the right word, but like it seems very similar to how Pruitt described what he did to his wife. And that he like slaps. Oh yeah, he hits the the uh, the like side of a table. Right, and she's basically knocked out, and they think she's dead. Again, in my head, I the first time I watched this, I genuinely thought, okay, Will is definitely the bad guy now. He's completely lost it. And mm -hmm. when Kira says she's not breathing, and it turns back over to Gina, and she's like frothing at the mouth or foaming at the mouth. Excuse me. Um, 
what what was your thought on that? Because everything starts to go into slow motion, and there's so many different things happening. Um, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear your kind of take on what was going on in your head. Well, for stars, that's a great point. I never thought about that or paid attention to the fact that that's how she, the way that Will kills her essentially is the same way that Pruitt killed his wife. It's just one was intentional and one was not really. Seeing Gina frothing from the mouth is it's kind of morbid, but it was relief. Because, oh, thank God, Will is not crazy. I haven't put all my eggs in this person's basket and then they end up being the crazy person. But again, it's kind of the subtlety of which the violence occurs in that scene and just more about the mellow energy in terms of the cultists. Whereas all of the guests are horrified and they're saying, oh shit, she must be having some sort of reaction to something. They're not even on the same wavelength as Will where Will watches the, uh, the video and he sees the doctor that's the head of the cult basically like telling the, it's a suicide mission, basically telling everybody it's time. You're going to be with me, which in their fucked up view of life, like the only way to do that is for everybody to die. Um, but then you see like Pruitt walking to the bedroom to go get a gun. Or I believe it was David, actually. David goes to fetch the gun, but he doesn't even say anything and nobody addresses him because they're so fixated on Gina, uh, understandably so. But just the cold calm and cool calculated manner with which he goes to get the gun to finish people off like it's it's just super disturbing to me again because it's very domestic it's very it feels very much like something that could happen in a way that's not fantastical that's not done in service of just like getting to a certain point in the narrative like it feels very grounded and very very real i agree 100 percent. i mean there's um two different basically death, so to speak, that we're dealing with, right? In theory, you have um, Sadie, who's on the ground at that time, bleeding from her head, and we, we think she potentially is dead in that sense. And then you also have uh, Gina, who's, you know, foaming at the mouth. Um, and then when you have uh, David come in, and he shoots, um, what was that gentleman's name? It wasn't Tommy, it was his boyfriend, um, Miguel. He shoots Miguel. And... The the there's a close up of Kira, who's basically right next to him when that happens, and she's like she's covered in blood a little bit, and she's like trying to move backwards, and there's just this stone cold like horror face, like her mouth is open, she's you know freaking out obviously, but that tension and mm-hmm. like the music or whatever is going on in the background that's so eerie you don't need like a huge uh, explosion or anything like that to capture that kind of horror. It's so simplistic. Um, Yeah. That effect. I mean, they do just such a great job of making those deaths simplified, but to your point, I mean, the, the horror magnitude is as big as it can probably be in that kind of a situation. Yeah. And we were talking earlier before we were recording about like how blown away we were. This movie's budget was a million dollars. And for them to convey this level of horror and this level of disgust and very simplistic means in terms of the violence and how those fight scenes play out, I think it just speaks to all the legwork they do for three-fourths of the movie to get that payoff because a majority of movies don't have that kind of payoff. You become desensitized by the end of the movie, whereas in this, it's just been ramping and building and building and building till once we get something that is, by all means and purposes, it's like very simplistic and it's very what you're expecting but at the same time it's been missing from the entire movie that i feel like it just carries an added weight 
uh, to it. But uh, were there any other uh, major scenes that kind of stood out to you? Um, so the one other one that really struck with me, and uh, I'm fascinated by cults. Um, if you, I don't know if you've had a chance to see Wild Wild Country yet. Um, I have not, no. Do I need to add that to my list? Highly recommend. Yeah, it's like an eight or ten part documentary on Netflix, but it's about a cult in Oregon. Anyways, mm-hmm. not necessarily pertinent to this discussion, but when uh, Eden shoots herself after she mm-hmm. will, immediately she she apologizes, right? Yeah. You can tell, and I don't know, to me it really fucked me up, but you could tell how how messed up she was after that because that whole, in, like, there's a scene where she's up against, uh, or she's sitting against the refrigerator and she's crying and she tells David, this isn't how it's supposed to go. In her mm-hmm. mind, she thought she was helping her friends, right? She was right. killing them and murdering all of them, right? And yeah. I think it really hits home when she shoots David, or excuse me, she shoots Will, her ex-husband, and he goes down and Kira's just standing there um, and she shoots herself they carried her to the backyard and you know, she's telling them, I just wanted to find peace. Mm. And I, man, that hit home so much just in the sense of like, everyone's been through some shit before. Right. But like, I feel like the central tenet of why cults happen aside from, again, we talked about like, you know, the sex and the power structure and all that stuff. It's people that are broken in some sense and they're looking for a way to fix it. And it's manipulating vulnerable people. Exactly. And there's no better example of that than Eden because she just wanted to find a way to cope with her son dying. And mm-hmm. that's, I think, the last thing she said. I mean, I don't remember the, the yeah. scene, but um, she's like, I just want to be with him again. And she dies. And then I feel like Will, Kira, and Tommy, I believe, Tommy Miguel's boyfriend, they're now all le- they're all what's left of that group and yeah in a weird sick way i feel like they value their lives more and so in the way of what that cult was trying to to do in terms of having people be at peace obviously they're not necessarily at peace but they have a newfound understanding of life i feel like after that um that was my kind of weird way of kind of looking at that ending <laughs> No, I think you're right. And again, you've been talking about like contrasting characters and contrasting uh, different personalities between the characters and their actions and whatnot. And really, I mean, Will and Eden are contrasted in how they're dealing with this grief and how on the outside, Will clearly like his friends did not do a great job of taking care of him. Because if your friend showed up looking like that, if you showed up, if I, I hadn't seen you in two years and you showed up with this wild long hair and wild facial hair after a tragedy, I would be like, I'd pull you aside and be like, dude, we need to have a talk, like a serious sit down. Like this is not a fashion statement. This is like a trauma statement. Uh, But, and then you see like his exterior, he's clearly struggling. Whereas contrasted with her exterior presentation, she's very, she looks at peace. She's wearing white, all these things we find out. Obviously it's mostly the drugs that are making her seem so mellow, but to your point, at the end of the day, once they kind of have to get rid of these facades they're putting on for people around them, because Will's always saying that I'm fine, everything's fine. Clearly, we learn in the first 10 minutes of meeting him that things are not fine. Um, but in having that kind of like heart to heart that you mentioned, it really does show that they're on common ground and it contrasts the very 
jarring weight paths that people can go down to kind of deal with their own trauma and dealing with their grief that for the most part seems very unresolved. The very end that, that, um, you know, Eden's dead, Will and Kira are looking out onto the, I believe it's LA if I'm not mistaken as well. Yeah, they're in LA. When you look out and kind of coming back to that point, we didn't know what, what Will, or excuse me, what David was lighting that lantern for. Yeah. And you see that entire ridge filled with those lanterns and in the distance you hear like shooting and screaming and fire trucks and all that stuff. Right. And then it's like, Oh, okay. So this is, you know, this is a wide scale. This isn't just a small thing. Yeah. I don't know, again, to me, I didn't know if they were going to make like the invitation to after that. I feel like <laughs> that open. I don't know. There's no more cultists. Well, that's a fair point. Yeah. They knew, hopefully that main guy didn't die. Um, yeah. But, Again, it kind of gives you a sense of dread of like, okay, these guys survived it, but this is one of thousands of situations that just happened. And, you know, trying to think of those stories as well. Um, it just, again, it, it, the director con- consistently, when you think that everything is somewhat okay, there's always something in the background or, you know, in the, uh, you know, basically not in the top of mind for you where. Right. Oh, shit can hit the fan again in some other way. And again, it's just phenomenal ending to that kind of a movie. In my opinion. This is one of my favorite endings, I think, of any movie I've seen in the last few years. Just because it does this, cl- it does a thing that not a lot of horror movies do where you have the big reveal, you have the climax, and you think, oh, everything is handled, everything is done. But then they kind of have this secondary, oh, fuck moment. And they barely give you enough time to process it before the credits hit. And I think in that timing is really important because then if you're not given much time to process what's happening, it makes it that much more shocking. Even on a rewatch, I find it's super shocking. And it's interesting. The two writers that wrote this, they conceptualized the film around this idea. So this was the the first idea they had. And and they had said in the commentary, uh, we love movies where the final shot or series of shots tells you something that you couldn't have known before or that changes everything. And while that's true overall, there is one little line that is a lot more sinister that David says early on when they're kind of introducing the sales pitch, as it were, for the cult early on. He says, oh yeah, you know, it's in these people, people like us are in LA, they're in New York, it's thousands of people. And so originally I didn't even process that line the first time I watched it. And in hearing it a second time at first, I'm like, that's kind of a throwaway. But then once I saw the ending and that final shot and this oh fuck realization that what just happened in this house is happening all over LA. And based off of that line, we know it's happening all over the country potentially. And it just adds this idea and this reinforcement that the world is a dangerous and scary place. There's nothing about this scenario that for the most part, is unrealistic. Granted, I don't know how successful all these people would be at killing all these people, but the core concept of that, I mean, we see it in media and we, I mean, based on all these crime documentaries, people are very easily manipulated to the point where they can do things that if you knew them growing up, you wouldn't be able to guess they'd do later in life. And so this idea that you could indoctrinate enough uh, traumatized people, disenfranchised people and whatnot into doing something, I feel like this movie presents that in a very realistic and mellow way that 
makes it that much more terrifying. A hundred percent. Um, we did a, a movie and I, I'm terribly sorry that I forget little Jack's house. What was it? Uh, Oh, the, the house that Jack built, the house that Jack built in that movie, we see him, you know, pretending to be, I think it was an insurance salesman. And then he switched yeah. to the cop and this woman, you know, everybody else would have been like, get the hell out of here. She wants to get some extra money. And so she lets him in that simplistic kind of ideal of people have a problem. I can try and find a way to help you on mm-hmm. mass scale. Like cults is unfortunately something that does tend to happen in some cases. Right. Um, but again, to, to what you had just said, I mean, uh, this is not the, the scariest movies to me um, aren't necessarily zombie movies or things that are just, you know, it's not necessarily realistic. It's the mm-hmm. kind of movies where the premise is very simple. And as things unfold, you definitely can see some characteristics of people that you probably know in your life, whether it's family members or people that you're friends with that have some of those small characteristics that folks that are both on the cult side and that are, you know, the normal people side in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. and you're like, yeah, I, I can see somebody getting into this kind of a thing if, if something goes wrong in their life or if, you know, the right kind of conversation comes about. So that eeriness is definitely there. I mean, to piggyback off that too, it, it doesn't even have you look at other people differently. To some extent, it had me look differently at myself. It had me ask the vital question in movies like this that are so based on people and how events affect people, how would I react if I suffered a tragedy like that? And of course, the first gut wrench or uh, reaction would be, well, I would never join a cult. I'm not stupid. I could cl- I could clearly see through that. But then you have to realize once you kind of get past that knee-jerk assumption that you would make is you don't know how you would react when you're rippled by trauma. And clearly some people get help we see two people who did not get the proper help that they needed. And we see the two, again, contrasting their experiences with grappling with that uh, guilt and grief and whatnot. And I mean, any movie that can you can watch and then have you look at yourself and others differently, I think that really says something. And that makes this movie effective in a way that not a lot of horror movies are, especially ones that are more supernatural because you can easily explain away those situations for the most part, even if they are terrifying. At the end of the day, once you leave the theater, for the most part, you're like, okay, the movie, it was a good movie. Right. But in this, again, just the overall presentation and the way that it really makes you look internally at yourself in a lot of ways, I just think is really, really well done. I mean, to that last point, I'll, I'll leave you with this, man. But um, I think the fact that you are looking at yourself more so at the end of this movie, <laughs> going to be declining any dinner, dinner party invitations you give out in the future. Oh, dude, as soon as we all get vaxxed up, we're having a COVID, uh, a post-COVID party. So I hope you're ready. I'll be MIA for that one after this. <laughs> but I appreciate you having me on this, man. Thank you so much, buddy. Yeah, of course. I was happy to chat about uh, The Invitation, which is currently streaming on Netflix. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to Daily Horror Habit on your preferred streaming service and follow at Daily Horror Habit on Instagram and at Daily Horror Pod on Twitter.